0: Hi, you're listening to one of our Irish Passport Half Pints. Extra content episodes that we make especially to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. And you're in luck. This one's a freebie. We're making the whole episode freely available to all of our listeners. In this episode, for the 100th anniversary of the World War I armistice, we're taking a look at the complicated and sometimes controversial relationship Ireland has had with that ubiquitous little red poppy that has become so associated with the war in the UK. If you want to access our whole library of half-pint extra content episodes, you can head on over right now to www.patreon.com slash theirishpassport and become a supporter of the podcast today. Okay, I'll pass you over to Naomi. Enjoy the episode.
1: I believe poppies are my first memory of the concept of charitable giving. That's because until the age of six, I went to school in London, where my parents, both from North Dublin, moved as emigrants in the 80s. I have a very textile memory of poppies being sold from charity boxes at the school doors, chunky British pounds in exchange for the chunky black centres and papery leaves. I wore one on my school jumper, I'm sure. Everyone did. I don't remember understanding why, except a vague belief that this was something for the greater good. Then we moved home to Dublin and I didn't have to think about poppies. Poppies were just a flower. That was until I found myself back in London as a grown-up, working as a journalist. And that was when I became aware of the poppy as the subject of a perennial culture war, an occasion for the rehearsal of irreconcilably opposed positions. The same familiar arguments are aired ritualistically every year, when the poppy season hits in the build-up to Armistice Day, which commemorates the end of World War One on November 11th. If you're someone in the public eye in Britain and you don't wear a poppy, you run the risk of becoming this season's latest controversy. Here's the reaction of football fans to James McLean, a footballer for Stoke City who makes headlines every year for not wearing a poppy when the rest of his team does. has received death threats as a result. So why does James MacLean not wear a poppy? Well, he's from Derry. Our episode about the city gives the context, but here's a clip that pretty much sums it up. It's a response by the comedy channel on YouTube, Cahoots Productions.
2: The poppy symbolizes not just the casualties of World War I, but all British armed forces who served and sacrificed in all subsequent conflicts. Now, one of those subsequent conflicts, Dave, as you well know, is the North of Ireland Troubles, and a key event in the Troubles, known as Bloody Sunday, was when British Armed Forces opened fire on 28 unarmed civilians in a peaceful protest march in Derry, ultimately killing 14 of them. The Saville Inquiry concluded that those killings, Dave, were both unjustified and unjustifiable, leading the then British Prime Minister, David Cameron, to issue an unprecedented apology to the people of Derry on behalf of the United Kingdom. No, Dave, of the people murdered on Bloody Sunday, Half of them were from James Maclean's own estate of Craigan in Derry. I ask you, Dave, if armed forces murdered people in your neighbourhood, would you commemorate them every year by wearing a little flower on your lapel?
1: Kylie Noble is someone with intimate experience of the complexities of what the poppy can mean. She's a freelance writer and a journalist who grew up in Fermanagh in Northern Ireland. Let's hear from her about the symbolism of the flower and how it has evolved for her over her life.
2: The poppy is an extremely divisive symbol in Northern Ireland. For most of my life I didn't know it was divisive. I went to a Protestant primary school, Protestant secondary school and socialised as a teenager at Protestant youth clubs. It was a very insular way to grow up in a deeply divided society, though it was logical due to that divide. From my early years in primary school, we studied the world wars and Britain's role in them. I think I first studied the Battle of the Somme at the age of seven. Moving to England made me feel much more Irish, and I was alarmed to feel so different in the heart of the Union which I was raised to revere. Since moving back to Northern Ireland, I have come to realise that while I am Irish foremost, Britishness will always be an element of my identity. It's not a Britishness like that in England perhaps. Perhaps it is best described as Ulster Britishness. I will never perfectly fit the stereotypical Irish identity, due to being a Northern Protestant, and the conflicts involved in being caught between two identities which are presented as polar opposites. One such conflict has been my struggles with the symbolism of the poppy. In my unionist upbringing, of course, I had none. My devotion to its meaning was automatic and uncritical, as I knew of no reason to be critical. In my home of County Fermanagh, the poppy's meanings for the unionist community was intensified by the 1987 professional IRA bomb that exploded at a Remembrance Day service in the centre of Illeskin, killing 12 Protestant civilians. One person killed was Mary Wilson, a nurse and a former deputy head girl of my secondary school. From about age five, I wore a poppy and attended a Remembrance service every year at church. The first time I heard a counter narrative to the one I had grown up with was after I moved to Belfast for university. I learned of Bloody Sunday, the Ballyworthy Massacre, that the army had killed civilians, including children, the army often intimidated and tortured Catholic citizens, of interment by trial. I was shocked and horrified that within a region of the UK, the British army had killed its own citizens, that many in the Catholic community had lived in fear of an army that was supposed to protect them. I had grown up believing the army to be entirely noble. It felt like the world I knew It was of each horror and injustice I discovered, slowly coming crashing down. I think if I'd have known of these wrongs, earlier in life, the shock would not have been so destabilising. I would have not felt so personally ashamed. Perhaps it is more so shame that so many of us cannot grow up with a more critical understanding of our side's role in the conflict. So I wore a white poppy because I wanted to remember all who had died in conflicts, not only in the Troubles, but worldwide. I want to acknowledge that the state too can kill innocents. I feel too for the English, Scottish and Welsh soldiers who came here. Many of them were working class, and the army offered a purpose for their lives. They were told nothing of the history that had led to them being here. I am torn because both Protestants and Catholics, unionists and Nationalists, and all in between, are my side, as they are all of this island. I am Irish and a British citizen, but wearing a red poppy with a white one, it captures my feelings of gratitude and anger, my critical remembrance. To me, wearing a red and a white poppy is the best way I can honour the complexities of conflict and a means for me to come to terms with how Britishness fits into my Irish identity.
1: If we want to get to the roots of why the poppy divides people in Ireland, we have to turn the clock back a century. When the First World War broke out in 1914, Ireland was just about to be granted its own parliament under the Home Rule Bill, the culmination of decades of campaigning by Irish Nationalists in the Westminster Parliament. But the outbreak of war delayed its enactment. The response of Irish Nationalists was split. John Redmond, the leader of the Moderate Nationalist Irish Parliamentary Party, called on Irishmen to enlist for the war. Redmond believed that if Ireland demonstrated loyalty, Home Rule would be enacted without delay. Like much of the recruitment propaganda in Ireland at the time, he linked the war to his own aspirations for Irish self-rule. It was cast as a fight for the freedom of small nations, to free countries like Little Belgium, which had been invaded by Germany at the start of the war. But radical nationalist circles were having none of it. Among them, opposition to enlistment and conscription in Ireland became a rallying call. In particular, women marched and took pledges swearing they would never work in the place of conscripted men. We serve neither King nor Kaiser, but Ireland, read a banner, hung over Liberty Hall in central Dublin. Inside that building, preparations were soon underway to take advantage of Britain's distraction to rebel for outright independence. In all, 210,000 Irishmen fought in the British Army in World War I. Some of them were conscripts who had been living in Britain. Many of them were Unionists loyal to Britain. Some of them were just looking for excitement. Some of them signed up hoping it would get Irish self rule. Some of them were just poor and glad to have any salary at all. One of them was my great grandfather.
0: His name was Andrew MacDonald. He was born in a place in Limerick, a townland in Limerick, I think, a long, long time ago. He was a lovely, soft gentleman. He used to babysit us uh, when my mother was ill or away shopping on another occasion.
1: That's my Uncle Brian.
0: The bit that I remember him when I was small. When young, maybe, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, is that he had an in- he had a wound in his arm, in his forearm, and you could put your two fingers, one on each side of the arm. No, it, it, there was skin kind of in the middle of it. it sounds a bit gruesome. The two fingers could touch each other, you know. Never talked about the war like a lot of returning soldiers as well.
1: I found my great-grandfather's medal card in the British National Archives. It shows that he enlisted at the end of November in 1914 and served in the Irish Guards, He was shot through the arm, just looking at the dates, that might have been at the Battle of the Somme, and he was discharged in April 1918 with a victory medal, a British medal and a 1915 star. The Ireland he and other veterans came home to, though, was very different to the one that he'd left. In his absence, the radical nationalists had become the mainstream. They'd launched the Easter Rising in a bid for Irish independence, and popular opinion had swung behind them. They were about to be vindicated with a massive electoral mandate in the 1918 general election. For many, fighting for Britain was nothing to be proud of. It was fighting for Ireland that counted now. Within a year, the British army was pitted against the Irish Republican army in the War of Independence. and Many Irish veterans joined the rebel side. A new British force called the Black and Tans, mostly recruited from British World War I vets, were sent into Ireland to put down the insurgency. They ran rampant, besieging and sacking small towns and villages and burning down much of Cork City. Allegiances were getting complicated. But nothing could change the fact that 49,000 soldiers from the island of Ireland had died in the First World War and they left many more family members behind them. Those people wanted to commemorate their dead and commemorate they did. The Royal British Legion launched the poppy pin in Ireland in 1925. It was so successful that Irish Republican women produced a rival pin, the Easter Lily. In 1926, the Irish Times reported that a crowd of 40,000 took part in Armistice Day in Dublin. While on the sidelines, Republican activists demonstrated their opposition, tearing down Union flags and snatching away poppy pins. A dividing line set in over who's dead to remember and how. In the following decades, as the Irish government consolidated its power and set about building and shaping the state, It decided not to embrace World War I commemorations as part of the national narrative. Low-key commemorations still took place, but it was a controversial issue. Republicans considered war memorials to be among the symbols of British imperialism. Statues of British historical figures were destroyed and damaged and blown up around the country. And war memorials were targeted too. But in the past two years, there has been a perceptible change. The 100-year anniversaries have arrived. First of 1916, then of the end of the First World War. The Easter Rising commemoration was marked by an attitude of inclusiveness, a spirit of embracing and exploring all the complexities of Irish history. First World War narratives were included as part of the commemorations, and not without controversy, the British soldiers who died fighting against the Easter Rising were also included in memorials. As part of the outreach, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and some members of his Fine Gael party have begun wearing the shamrock poppy, which is a design by the Royal British Legion to commemorate Irish troops, and sold by the Legion's Irish branch. Revenues go to veterans and memorials in Ireland.
0: Up to, I'd say, a number of years ago, people didn't wear poppies too publicly because, my have heard of cases of some people that wore poppies getting abused and stuff like that. And there's still a pocket of uh, people resistance, want a better word, verbal resistance for people that wear poppies, but thank, thankfully it's diminishing. People have been much more understanding of why people wear poppies. There's a number of reasons why I think it's important to remember. I think that this war was a disastrous war and it's such a waste of young people, like some of them joined up when they were 14 years of age. and It's what a waste of human life and like a generation was absolutely... Demolished, runs a better word. And a lot of them, when they came back, the ones that came back, they weren't necessarily shunned, but they didn't get much recognition when they came back. They were, because of the the uprising had happened here, and there was a new government, and a lot of anti-British feeling and stuff like that. I think it's no harm. It's not not writing a wrong, but it, it 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 kind of brings a bit of balance into the historical perspective. I think that there's no such thing as black and white.
1: Is remembrance simply writing a historical wrong? I feel there's something missing from this debate. It seems like every time the meaning of the poppy is talked about, people ignore the most important fact about it. The poppy is not a generic object like, say, a gravestone or memorial benches or plaques or photographs or the other common ways that we have of memorialising. The poppy is a copyrighted symbol and it only has one legal owner. To wear a poppy, you have to buy one from this legal owner and the proceeds go to this specific mundane entity the Royal British Legion. The selling of poppies is a fundraising campaign. It has specific aims and purposes, which are public, and we can interrogate and discuss them. As far as I'm concerned, if we want to understand the significance of wearing a poppy, we should start by asking what the Royal British Legion does and what the fundraising drive pays for. So here it is. This is what the poppy appeal is for, according to the annual accounts of the Royal British Legion. In 2017, the poppy appeal raised 50 million pounds, it did this through the sales of Poppy-branded things of all kinds, not just pins. Poppy umbrellas, there's a Poppy dog food bowl for sale, I saw a Poppy hijab. The whole fundraising drive costs about £14 million to run, so that's about £36 million net. It's the Legion's biggest earner, but it's not the only way it earns money. It gets almost as much through just straight-up donations, money left in wills and events. It also earns a lot through lotteries and fees that are charged in the care homes that it runs, and from grants. It also has 120,000 volunteers, which is quite an amazing asset in itself, as well as various properties and financial investments. So those are the revenues. Where does the money go to? The Royal British Legion describes its mission as follows, We provide support for the armed forces community in the here and now, while keeping alive the memory and legacies of those who have served. The biggest chunk of expenditure, 37%, goes on welfare services, followed by care homes and break centres at 20%. Running the poppy appeal and lotteries, donation and legacy appeals and events accounts for about 27%. 5% is earmarked simply remembrance, and 7% goes on communication and campaigns. So a majority goes on looking after veterans in various ways, and a good amount goes on the perpetuation of the Royal British Legion and remembrance itself. Let's look at the welfare part first. What does welfare actually mean? Well, it turns out there are actually 400 military charities that provide welfare support for veterans in Britain. And the Royal British Legion coordinates them, as well as lobbying the government for better provision for veterans. The services it coordinates includes things like help with employment, finance, independent living, respite, recovery and care. The annual report gives some concrete examples of what this looks like. For example, there was a Royal Marine commander who served in Kosovo, Iraq and Afghanistan who had titanus, which is like a permanent ringing in the ears. He was injured in a bomb explosion. With the support of the Legion, plus 10 million from UK Treasury, he got a new kind of iPod treatment, which allows his titanus to be treated while he's asleep. Here's another example. A young couple who both work in the army. The husband has served in Afghanistan, Northern Ireland and Cyprus. They were finding it stressful with the two jobs and a kid, so they got a break in a British Legion holiday home. So that's the welfare part. What about remembrance? This is how the Royal British Legion describes that task. Quote, we champion remembrance and ensure that all those who have fought and died in conflicts past and present are remembered. We will ensure that the unique contribution made by those who have served and their families is understood, observed, and that remembrance is passed on to the next generation. End quote. The ways in which this remembrance aim is achieved are quite various. So, for example, last year, the Legion and Queen Elizabeth opened a memorial marking 25 years since the start of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Legion also founded a project of, quote, immersive virtual reality videos that brought the First World War to life. So what is being remembered exactly? What's the subject of this remembrance? Helpfully, the Royal British Legion has a section of its website called What We Remember, which is dedicated to answering that question. There are four uh, subtitles of that. World War One, World War II, something called the Great Pilgrimage, which was itself a remembrance event in 1928. But at the very top, the first thing listed is recent conflicts. The recent conflicts are described as follows, quote, Since the Second World War, the United Kingdom's armed forces have fought in numerous conflicts around the world, from colonial unrest to the fight against terrorism. Colonial unrest kind of got my attention, so I checked out the recent conflicts referred to. There are a whole bunch of them, so here's just a few examples. Palestine, 1922 to 1948... Britain was in control of Palestine at the time, and much of the conflict here was Zionist forces trying to win Israeli independence. Then there's Canal Zone Emergency, 1951 to 1953. That was resisting popular opposition to the British presence in Egypt. Then there's Kenya, 1952 to 1960. Uh, This was a conflict to put down the African nationalist movement called the Mau Mau, I'm just going to break in here and say that British forces detained civilians and suspected Kenyan independence rebels en masse in concentration camps in this period, and that they are accused of widespread torture and castration of prisoners. Former US President Barack Obama has written that his grandfather was detained and tortured, for example. There are very few colonial files about it because they were destroyed or mislaid by the British, which is a story for another day. You know what conflict I'm coming up to, right? Northern Ireland Troubles, 1969-1998. to The Legion describes it as, quote, a violent three-decade conflict over the constitutional status of Northern Ireland and, interestingly, the longest continuous campaign in the history of the British Army. Apparently, there were more British troops in Northern Ireland than were sent to invade Iraq. I have some questions about all of this. First of all, I'm wondering, why is the Anglo-Irish War not in there? If they're going to list the suppressions of rebellions, successful and unsuccessful, all over the world, why not include that one? Ireland, 1919 to 1921. British forces against guerrilla warfare by the Irish Republican Army. 714 members of British forces killed before a ceasefire and the partition of Ireland. Secondly, I have questions about the welfare part. So if, if soldiers need all of these services and provisions after they serve in wars, Why shouldn't that stuff be priced into the cost of war? Britain is a welfare state and it has a national health service. If the state is happy to send people to war, why isn't it providing the services that they need as a result of that? Why should this be funded by charity donations from citizens? Finally, why is the poppy appeal getting bigger? The number of serving members of the British Army has declined every year since 1952 and with them, the number of veterans to look after. Nevertheless, according to the Royal British Legion, in 2017 the Poppy Appeal raised more money than ever before. I know more about charitable donations now than I did when I was a school child in London. These days I'm a bit of a fan of the effective altruism movement. To sum it up broadly, the argument goes something like this. If you saw a child drowning in a pond and you just watched and did nothing to help, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? Okay. Well, it just so happens that children are dying, and we have a choice about whether or not to save them. Because of massive global inequality, we can actually save lives for just a few quid, if you give the money to the right programme. There are various organisations that assess the most effective charities in the world, going by the number of lives you can save per dollar. One of them is the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative. Complicated name, but what it does is simple. It figures out the most cost-effective ways to treat children for worms and parasitic infections that affect about 1.5 billion people, mostly the poorest people in the world. It just so happens that these diseases are actually really cheap and easy to treat. It costs about half a dollar per child per year. Now, going by British government figures, as of 2016, there were 2.5 million veterans living in Britain. If we were to simply divide up the net proceeds of the poppy appeal and give it to them, they'd get about £14 each. Or we could treat a class of children for parasitic worm infections. I don't know. You decide. Here's a quote from the Royal British Legion about remembrance. Quote, the Legion advocates a specific type of remembrance connected to the British armed forces. Those who were killed, those who fought with them and alongside them. What is the purpose of this remembering? It's not so that such wars and death don't happen again. Should I purchase a poppy to honour my great-grandfather? If so, why? Is there an inherent moral good in that? The Royal British Legion hasn't successfully made that case. What the Legion does state is that it wants everyone to be involved in remembering. It has a five-year remembrance plan. Here I quote, primary objective to encourage remembrance to be understood and observed by all and handed on to future generations. Secondary objectives, to attract new, younger and more diverse audiences with remembrance activities they find relevant and engaging. Aim for 2018, to ensure that remembrance is more fully understood and supported by all ages, backgrounds, religious and ethnic communities. It seems like the Legion has its eye on me. The shamrock poppy starts to make sense. I lived in England in the build-up to the Brexit vote in 2016. It seemed like those years were a drumbeat of commemoration and pageantry. There was a reenactment of the funeral of Winston Churchill in twenty fifteen, with a full flotilla of boats that sailed up the Thames with the original barge that carried his coffin. It seemed like a whirlwind of royal babies, Olympic games, Union Jack tea cakes and Marks and Spencer, bunting, jubilees, invictus games, proms, pomps, and pageants. But what really unsettled me was the horse show for Queen Elizabeth's 90th birthday. In a floodlit arena, acrobatic horse handlers from all around the world performed before the Queen. And to start the celebration, soldiers let off six field artillery guns dating from World War I.
0: It was a party that started with a bang and continued at a gallop. The patriotic pace never flagged.
1: This was sold as a key highlight of the event in the press materials surrounding it. There was one question on my mind. Was it one of those guns that fired on my city 100 years ago? In 1916, when Irish rebels proclaimed an independent republic in Dublin, the British army responded by wheeling up just those kind of artillery field guns and firing straight into the densely populated main streets of what was then the second city of the United Kingdom. They left Dublin in smouldering ruins. The north inner city has never really recovered since. Everybody else watching the pageant on the PBC didn't seem to have those questions. It seemed like to them the guns weren't even weapons. They were a jolly spectacle. Family fun. To me, the Royal British Legion and its poppy appeal is obvious propaganda for war. All wars by Britain. It seems like the confusion and blurring between the general concept of remembrance and the poppy appeal in particular is deliberate, a way of using the widespread revulsion and sorrow about the massive and futile losses of World War I to somehow vindicate and gain popular acceptance for all of Britain's wars, from then right up to, as the Legion says, the present. If you ask me, the poppy is propaganda. Propaganda that's so established, so successful, so dominant in Britain, that it enjoys the luxury of not being seen as propaganda. Like all the pageants, the pomps, the games. It's a nationalism so blind, it doesn't see itself as nationalism at all.